0: And now, a word from our sponsor. Welcome to the Last Looks Podcast, Melanie.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be a part of your podcast.
0: That's awesome. Now, can you tell us how the product development team at Hask Hair Care decides which products to launch?
1: Sure, of course. For Hask, deciding what products to launch is a process that involves looking at ingredient and product, fragrance and texture trends within the hair care, skin and the overall beauty market. We find inspiration not only in beauty, but also through trending and unique exotic ingredients within the beverage, food, and even the wellness categories. We look to the prestige and professional hair care markets for inspiration of new and unique products or forms that we can bring to the mass market at a more affordable price. In addition, we review the white space for our brand, like what is missing in our line or collection, and review feedback from our customers, and especially the hairstylists who support our brand. Most importantly, the team at Hask ensures that we love the product before we bring it to market. We do extensive in-house testing as well as consumer testing to get the right products, collections, and fragrances.
0: Runs like a well-oiled machine. I like it. So tell us about one of
1: Hask's top hair care collections. I'd love to. We have the Hask Biotin Boost collection. This is our thickening collection formulated with a tri-level thickening complex of biotin, collagen, and coffee. And the system has four products. The Biotin shampoo and conditioner are designed to volumize, strengthen, and fortify hair. They transform your fine, flat strands into voluminous, thicker-looking, stronger, and softer hair. Sounds like a little of what I need. <laughs> then if you're looking for great styling products to create a thicker, fuller look, the Has Biotin Collection provides two terrific options as well. First, there's the Biotin 5-in-1 Leave-In Spray. This is a multi-benefit leave-in spray designed to add volume and thickness to fine, thin hair. It works small miracles by thickening and adding body, providing thermal protection, controlling frizz and adding shine, preventing breakage, detangling, and moisturizing. And there's also a Hask Biotin dry shampoo. Oh, I love a good dry shampoo. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Designed with ultra-fine rice starch, which provides long-lasting oil absorption, this lightweight formula acts quickly to soak up oil, sweat, and odor, and provides incredible texture. It leaves your hair fresh and clean with visible lift.
0: Amazing stuff. Melanie, thanks to you and Hask for being part of the podcast today.
1: Jamie Lee, it was a pleasure to be here today. Let me leave you and your listeners in the industry with this. The Hask brand welcomes the opportunity to continue building our relationship with the Hollywood styling community. If we can support a project you're working on, send us an email at hask at stonemanagement.net. We'd be happy to help.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you.
1: And now, our feature presentation.
0: Today on The Last Looks Podcast, I'm speaking with makeup and hair designer, Sarah Ribano. Sarah shares her journey of becoming a makeup artist and how she went from LA to New Zealand. Sarah has some super insightful advice that she lets us in on, so be sure to sit back, relax, and be inspired by the infectious passion Sarah has for her work. Picture up. Last looks. Rolling. And action. Welcome to the Last Looks Podcast, Sarah. Thank you, Jamie Lee. Nice to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. I'm honored, of course. Hey, now I would like you to finish this sentence for me, okay? Okay. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Sarah, and when she grew up, she wanted to be...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wanted to be creatively realized in some way. Okay. Yeah. So
0: what was the first thing little Sarah did to make that happen?
2: Well, oh my goodness. It's just from from where I'm sitting right now, there's just so many things that stacked up leading to where I am right now. But, you know, I think my first influence as a child, my first creative influence was my mother. She was, of course, an Avon lady, oh, which, nice. uh, which was delightful as a child because I had those tiny little mini lipsticks to play with, <laughs> oh um, all those little Avon samples. You remember those? And, and so she would have her little kit that she would take from house to house. And of course, my grubby little fingers would get in, into that uh, little kit on a daily basis. So that was an influence early on. And also, you know, she made all of the clothes that we wore. So she was quite a wonderful seamstress. And, and I would watch her do that. And, you know, it was like watching some, an alchemist, you know, it was magical to see her with a flat piece of fabric. And all of a sudden it turned into a beautiful little apron or skirt or, you know little top and so you know that was quite that was quite amazing for me to watch as a as a little girl so that that would be my first creative influence as a child I would say
0: that's very cool and then so going through schooling and growing up and getting into your teens what what direction did you end up going in then
2: Yes. So I went to college and I was living, I was born in Connecticut, but then moved to California in 1980. So I was in elementary school and went to school. We moved to Riverside, Loma Linda, Redlands area. So that's like an hour east of Los Angeles, and and that's where I went to high school. And then I went to uh, university in Riverside. And at the time, I was limited by the choices that I had at that university. It was more geared towards pre-med students. I think my influence, my reason for going there was uh, staying with my, my friends. So, But I knew at that point that I wanted to move into a creative realm. So my focus was communications, Bachelor of Arts, and I took every class I could within the realm of creative writing, television study editing photography just anything that, that 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 university offered in the way of creative courses i immersed myself into and i wasn't sure exactly you know, how it was all going to manifest and what roads would present. But I finished my term there. And so I do have a Bachelor of Arts in communications. Writing was a focus for me for quite some time. But after college, moved out to Los Angeles and started working to pay rent and and that meant working as a waitress and doing all the odd jobs to just make ends meet as we all did mm-hmm. in our early 20s late <laughs> teens and being in Los Angeles of course you're just in and amongst a an in incredible community of artists of all types you know musicians actors all the technicians that we are familiar with on a film set and a television set. Mm -hmm. And so I had, I started developing friends within all of those arenas. And it was so exciting and so dazzling just to see how the creative fields could blossom and grow and opportunity within each of those areas. So I pretty quickly had my eyes set on costuming and makeup I knew those were areas that I that I wanted to develop and had you know heartfelt interest in mm. but wasn't sure exactly how to get there and so at that stage simultaneous to all of that starting to all those interests starting to peak and perk up I I got a job as a production assistant on a television show mm. called Relativity so that was like the early 90s. And it was all administrative. But because I had just come from, you know, college study, I felt, you know, really honed in my administrative skills, which was very helpful. So that was my foot in the door. And I told the producers, you know, once I got to know them, and the office coordinators, you know, this is just temporary, this is just so... I can, you know, get my foot in the door and I want to, if there's any opportunity, move down into the costume department or down into makeup department because, you know, a two story building and in Culver City and that's where, you know, the makeup department was set up and, and costume department was set up, but because it was union and I was not union, they said, Well, you know, that's gonna be impossible because you'd have to be in the union to be involved in in those departments. But, you know, I still would just poke my head in every chance I could get just to see, you know, the inner workings and and you know, ask a million and a half questions and, (laughs) and bug them like crazy. And so that little period was about six months, and I met a art department lady Awana Bogdan, who was moving on to one of the Godzilla films, the one with Matthew Broderick, and and so that one was actually I think released in ninety eight, but you know the pre production was that for those films probably started in ninety five ninety six. So she asked me to come over to work in the creature shop and run the office there, and so. I was, of course, delighted because mm-hmm. it was a step closer to, you know, it was opportunity to work within a, a creative environment. And it, even though my responsibilities would be more administrative, I was basically immersing myself into a collection of artists that were just like the best in the business. It was, it was essentially a who's who of makeup affects people you know, Gino Acevedo, and I would go and just talk to him and watch him paint, you know, Gabe Bertales, you know, Jose Fernandez. And I would sit there and watch him sculpt and ask him questions and get pointers. Tom Flouts and, you know, Steve Wang, Marilee Kanega, incredible fabricator. And so all of those people were, were working in that, that building, run by Patrick Tatopoulos who was you know of course the creature designer and we worked in that building for over a year and within that time there was a lot of self study and i just immersed myself in that world and and the influence that those artists had on me during that period was actually life-changing yeah. because it opened up this. I was able to see what these creatives were able to do, you know, like with their talent, but but what, how they were able to contribute to storytelling with, you know, just building things with their hands. And, and so at that point, I was hooked. I wanted to be in that world, in that bubble. And after that film ended, Marilee Kinnag had me do some apprentice work with her. And so she carried on doing some projects with Patrick Totopoulos. And and I would go on and and do work with her. And she was just very patient and, and, and what I loved about, you know, specialty costuming and fabrication is that, you know, and, and really with anything creative is there's no rule book. Every job is so different. Mm -hmm. And even if you're getting to a very similar end result, how you get there is going to be different for every single job. And so that early, chapter of fabrication really helped me with thinking outside the box mm. and and learning to be a bit of a MacGyver of yeah. sorts <laughs> and finding that I was actually really good under pressure when there was no rule book. And so there was a period of that type of self-discovery. So for a while, I continued developing in, in that area. I had the wonderful opportunity to work, you know, over at Henson's, the Jim Henson Company under Julie Zobel. That's and awesome. then, of course, K&B with Beth Hathaway, um, and then working over at Steve Johnson's when it was, you know, Edge Effect's, and master's effects as well. So I started doing, you know, the makeup effects circuit and just, you know, learning so much and in and amongst that being exposed to a lot of the the prosthetic makeup artists that that would be working with the fabricators to complete a look. And so looking at that and feeling so amazed by it. Because, you know, of course, growing up, I, you know, I was so blown away by, you know, the star, you know, it's the same story as all of your other prosthetic makeup artists (laughs) that you've interviewed, you know, watching, you know, the transformation of the werewolf in London, watching, you know, Harry and the Hendersons, you know, going back to like Land of the Lost and watching, you know, those sleigh stacks on that TV series. Loving the John Pierce stuff, you know, Bride of uh, uh, Fr- Bride of Frankenstein, and you know, and then later, you know, The Abyss and Aliens and all of that stuff was so exciting. And those that those were the shows that I really got into. So as I started to get more and more exposure, as I ran from shop to shop, ran the circuit, I just started to see how it. All came together, and how these characters came to life, and I was dazzled and excited, and just felt like I had found an area that I, I, you know, that had no ceiling. Like that, it was just the opportunity would be endless, and there were so many wonderful things that I could potentially be a part of. So, so I just really, Jamie Lee, just put my head down and my bum up and off I went. So I remember sitting on my couch and I, I think it would have been, oh my goodness, you know, early 2000s. And I got a call from Beth Hathaway and she was, she was of course, at k at the time. And she said, hey, we've just been awarded the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Come on over and join the fabrication team. And of course, that was one of my favorite groups, uh, books as a child. And, yeah. uh, and so I, I just remember that moment because that was a pivotal moment in my life. I remember sitting where I was sitting there on the couch <laughs> and getting that call and that feeling that I got from that, that opportunity that had just come, come to me. And of course I said, yes, please. When do I start? And, and so I started on that and we prepped for a long time. It was probably at least six months of prep. And, um, That's good. and yeah, it was <laughs> a long prep and there was a lot to build. Centaurs and minotaur bodies, all the muscle structure that, you know, we had to build into those beautiful suits. And so then there was the first wave of people coming over to New Zealand. And Beth was not able to be in that first wave at that time. So she said, you know, Rabano, we need a fabricator. And, and Howard said, you know, Rabano, come on over. It'll be me, you and Tammy Lane. And we're <laughs> gonna, we're gonna be doing the Tumnus character and there's going to be a shit ton of hair laying all over his body and you know the prosthetics and all of that which of course Tammy and Howard would be doing and so I was part of that first wave and so in 2003 end of 2003 2004 I started packing for New Zealand and and for a year I was on that project we were it was almost a year of shooting in being, and then shooting in New Zealand for *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, and and that was that for me was where everything shifted. And basically, I had I felt like you know I had danced around makeup and prosthetic makeup mm-hmm. for a, a decade or so until <laughs> Howard Berger said. You know, gave me the opportunity to expand and grow, and basically put uh, some brushes in my hand and say, "Go for it, girl, do it." And I remember, you know, obviously I had done, you know, some self study. I had, I had assisted, and and this and that and the other. But it was the first time that I properly, you know, got to fly solo Mm. in application and painting and all of that. And I had the support of Howard and. You know what? Right away it felt like I had I had I was home. Yeah. I was like this is it. This is this is it for me. And I was good at it right away. I felt confident. I felt I felt excited about my potential and I felt there was promise there. It was the first time in my life really that I just felt like I had I had something that I could just call a career that I would work and work super hard at to grow as much as I could, and I felt like I had landed there and and from there it was I felt like a tiny little seed that was just about to you know burst open so really that's when you know so two thousand three two thousand four that's where the shift happened for me from. You know, fabrication, specialty costume into, you know, makeup.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's so cool because I mean, going from being a PA in the office to them going, no, no, there's no hope in hell. It's all union. You can't get in there. To then finding that area within the film industry that has that creative side, but you don't need to be in the union to doing it. So you're in the workshops and yes. still creating yeah. and being a part of everything to yes. then luckily going and working on something in another country where you're allowed to pick up those makeup brushes and get into it. Yeah.
2: So <laughs> uh, what a exactly, journey. Truly. And, you know, to have Howard and Tammy Lane to be just peering over my shoulder and saying, you know, a little bit more like this, a little bit more like that, you know, no, not like that, like this. You know, Tammy is, uh, I remember just some of her early thoughts on painting appliances. And, 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 you know, I still think of those tips and those notes. And every day when I'm doing my makeups, there's, it's, I still have her voice in my head and Howard's voice in my head. So, you know, I couldn't have been luckier. So there was a lot of work opportunity on the job. And that job in particular, the sheer numbers, you know, what, had to come out on the other side of every shooting day was immense. And, and so we, you know, we were thrown into situations that were just, it's like sink or swim. And so the the growth and the learning within that period of time was quite, there was a lot of growth, but coming out of that, I knew that there would be uh, a lot to continue learning and needing to take some courses and classes so that I could grow stronger and create more opportunity for myself. So I did that. I kept making the most out of every opportunity and then a lot of self
0: motivated study. Yeah. That's very cool. So how long were you yeah. in New Zealand doing that
2: that job? Yeah, so that was all of two thousand four. Okay. And I remember we came home in time for Christmas. So, yeah, it was the whole of 2004.
0: Yeah. And just for those who don't know Sarah, she actually lives in New Zealand now. So,
2: (laughs) I do. I do. On that job, of course, I met my wonderful husband, Joe, Joe Dunkley, and he was working for Weta Workshop, and he was one of their Onset uh, supervisors. So, you know, I met him on that and of course fell in love, and the rest is history.
0: (laughs) Match made in heaven.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm very lucky. We just last night we were talking about, you know, it's been, you know, we're actually coming up on 20 years almost of being together now. You know, in a couple years, a couple few years, it will be our 20 year anniversary from when we met. And, um, holy shit. I cannot believe, you cannot believe it. <laughs> well,
1: That's awesome. So yeah. Time cool.
2: flies, huh? Yes. Time flies. So, you know, and, and the wonderful thing about, you know, Joe is not only is he an incredible life partner, but we also, for a period of time, you know, we teamed up and we mm. were sent out. Richard Taylor, especially, you know, gave me so many opportunities I formed early on a wonderful partnership with Weta Workshop and have great relationships with, you know, Richard and Jason Dougherty, who was running the prosthetics department and all of the uh, team there, Rob Gillies. And so they sent us out, you know, Joe and I as a team, because Joe, his background is painting, crop making, armor weapons and the specialty costuming as well. So early on they saw us as a great, you know, a dynamic duo so they would send us to the far corners of the planet as a as a little team and And so we had some wonderful adventures early on as a, as a partnership, you know, young love, but also incredible workout opportunities under the Weta umbrella. So yeah, so it was a match made in heaven.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. (laughs) It doesn't happen very often that you can, you know, find someone that you can spend your life with, but also can do all that creative stuff with and work together. It's so cool.
2: Yeah, it is really cool. So we're, grateful. And, and we don't do that uh, much anymore. You know, I've kind of gone off into my area and he is a nine to five or eight to six, I should say at the (laughs) workshop, a creative director there and supervising various shows, but he is doing less on set. And of course I've carried on doing, you know, on set projects. So
0: it's a good balance. Yeah, it is (laughs) now that we
2: have dogs. Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) So how does that work For you, you've finally got those makeup brushes in your hands, getting into working on set and all that type of stuff, but then you come back to Los Angeles. Does that kind of mess anything up for you because you can't continue to do that in LA because of the union restrictions? Or how did you kind of keep going on your mission?
2: Yeah, so it was tricky because... You know, I had this incredible onset experience, but then back in LA, you know, to have that type of experience, you have to be in the union. So it's a bit of a pickle, which I had to navigate through, but it was doing some non-union work that came along and taking those opportunities. But also Joe and I in 2000, it was 2008 where we got an opportunity to work with with director neil blomkamp on a project that was non-union and that so we were in south africa actually so that was a huge opportunity and it was such a wonderful experience and we had such a great working relationship with neil that you know we did two more films with
0: him so what was the first one you did district nine right
2: District 9
0: which was I think mind-blowing for a lot of people like that was such a loved film just visually yeah. the story like everything it was just fucking crazy yeah
2: um, well mm, it was. <laughs> so Joe and I were actually we signed on to that project in the 11th hour we didn't know really what it was going to be we just knew that there was going to be a massive kit and we were going to be in charge of everything from, you know, a very big prosthetic makeup, all the way through to, you know, all the makeup effects, elements, props that, you know, that were of a makeup effects, you know, flavor. And, and, you know, so we also had guns, and we have fabricated suits. So it was a very big kit that we were in charge of. And when we went over to Johannesburg, we hired locally. So Thankfully, we had Yaku Simon and some of his crew come on and Emil, his brother, who was who was great with, you know, animatronics and the mechanics behind all that. So, But when we went over there, it was like we had no idea what we were landing into. And we were so young and full of excitement and um, passion. And I just remember just saying, you know, I'm not afraid of anything let's just do it. Let's make it work and let's make it beautiful and and let's put everything we have creatively into this. And we did that and we had some massive challenges that film from, you know, the working locations, working in the slums Mm -hmm. to, you know, just the conditions of, you know, the trailers were tricky. Having a crew that I had never worked with before and relying on their ability to help us get there. It was all quite scary, but also incredibly exciting and stimulating. So we just... Rocked right through that, but we had no idea, you know, what this project was going to be. You know, Charlotte Ho Copley was improving his way through most of it, and I remember finishing. We wrapped, and Joe and I looked at each other and said, "Whew! You know, wow, what an experience! <laughs> and what the hell is this going to be? You know, <laughs> what is this movie going to be?" Yeah. And um, so, to our delightment, you know, when it it did. Um, hit the screen we just you know it, it it's it was all better than what we could have ever imagined so,
0: yeah that no, was very cool I still remember going to see it and just being like walking out going I have not seen a film like that before that was cool
2: <laughs> yeah yeah it was super cool and and of course that got us to you know one of the bake-offs with the with the academy which was really exciting and felt like, a, you know, just an incredible honor. So, so I guess, you know, we formed a very strong relationship with Neil Blomkamp and his next film was in Vancouver, Canada. And, and I was also, you know, I had, Charlto and I had a great working relationship as well after all those hours spent mm. transforming him into, you know, as he started to go through that metamorphosis into the aliens, So we just got to know each other really well. So on Elysium, I was able to, we did a couple of small little projects here and there. And on Elysium, I was able to come in as a, a actor request. So that was my breakthrough into the union, which was really important at that time, because of course, opened up a lot of doors. So that was, you know, the I think 2011 or so, or 10, 2011, perhaps. Yeah, so I've been in the union for a decade, and it is an, like, you know, if you're living in LA, you've got to be in the union, as you know, Jamie Lee. And it's a great group of artists, and just the opportunities are are wonderful. So so that was my step in that direction. That's awesome. And what
0: kind of work
2: were you doing on that film yeah so on Elysium we had a lot of tattoo work of course we had prosthetic work a lot of makeup effects gags but I was doing Matt's makeup every day and he he went through quite quite a transformation as well Mm. from you know well presented and polished and (laughs) you know I've actually made a career of It seems I've made a career of visually aiding my characters, uh, my male leads through all kinds of wild transformations. So, you know, that was another one for me. And yeah, just a pleasure to work with Matt, of course. He's such a pro and it was yet yet another honor. But he had that, you know, surgery on the back of his head Mm. in the story. And that was Probably my first time working with encapsulated silicone, and it was just you know a beautiful application. So easy compared to previous applications with you know foam and and gelatin. They all have their the pros and cons, of course. But you know the encapsulated silicone is, is so quick and beautiful and translucent. But also on that project, you know, some of our characters, they're, they're meant to be branded. And it's almost like, you know, someone carrying a, you know, a Louis Vuitton bag, they themselves, instead of just carrying a prop that's branded mm-hmm. and trendy they were being stamped with branding. And so we were at a workshop. It felt like it was the beginning of generating prosthetics in a, in a 3d format that were then, you know, milled and, and printed those molds. And to me, that felt, you know, quite, quite groundbreaking. And the reason for doing that is because those, that branding needed to look, you know, machined and, all those right angles had to be crisp and clean. And, and so it couldn't have any kind of organic, you know, feeling to them. And we tried to sculpt a few and there was just, there was always that feeling of like, you know, with these intricate patterns, you just can't get there with an organic format. So, so that was quite cool. And that was some of the work we did on Elysium, which we're proud
0: of, of course. That's very cool. So, with these transformations that you do, tend to help your characters go through. How do you kind of map those out? Do you have a a way that you do it each time that you approach it, or is it different for each film? Because I mean, you know, you start with your character looking one way, and then by the end of it, it's the that transformations happened. So, do you have a way that you approach that in general?
2: I do. I do. Of course,
0: every, you know, like I said earlier, every
2: job is is unique. And so that process is unique on every, on every project. But what I try to do is when I'm reading a script, I just try to imagine that there is no dialogue in the storyline. So as I'm imagining that, how am I telling the story at these pivotal moments visually? How do I hit the creative notes so that the audience is feeling that layer without it being distracted by it? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you want to be distracted by it. You know, like for Dane DeHaan in, you know, as the Green Goblin and The Amazing Spider Man 2, you know, there's a point where he gets injected and then, you know, the lights start strobing and now that. You know, obviously, that's not going to be a, a subtle yeah. moment, yeah. a subtle note in the storyline. But you know, that's quite a jolting moment. But yes, yeah, so I I try to imagine that there is no um, dialogue; that it's all just a visual display. That you know, like little things stack up, stack up, stack up, from shading under the eyes to you know chapping on the lips and blue around the fingernails, and you know just what's happening and all of those things stack up and the subtleties will have an effect on the audience. And then all of a sudden you're just feeling it. You're in there with them. You're feeling the dismay or the uncomfortable, like the physical uncomfortable, you know, moments that maybe this character's meant to be feeling. So, so yes, that's pretty much how I do it. I just break down my script in that way and then hit those, those notes along the way
0: that's awesome because i know that a lot of the time we don't have the time or kind of resources maybe to to test out all those stages that that character might go through so do you have like is it helpful to you to have your at least if you can test your beginning stage and your end stage so you can kind of gauge how that journey is going to go
2: Yeah, absolutely. And what I try to do is figure out that end stage. What is it? Mm. And I like to break it. I like to visually break it so that the director and the producers and I can look at it and say, we've taken it too far. Right. I like to find that point because if you don't find that point and then work back a little bit from Mm. that point, you're not ever sure that you've brought it to its fullest potential if that makes sense yeah yeah yeah
0: Yeah. that's very cool yeah Yeah, i don't think i've I've spoken to anyone who has explained it in that way of how they read the script with losing the dialogue it's very cool especially because we are in such a visual department like it's what we do yeah.
2: Yeah, <laughs> totally. And you know, you you actually there's a question in your conversation bullet points saying something new that I've learned and, you know, and obviously I'm always learning. We're always learning, which is what I love about this industry like there's mm-hmm. just no ceiling to it yeah. because things are constantly evolving. But but to tie in with what we were just talking about, I feel like what I am what is really becoming apparent to me and resonating with me is that uh, is trusting my gut instinct mm-hmm. because often there is an authenticity a truth that comes with that initial gut feeling or that initial gut visual that i have when i'm reading and and imagining a character and so, just learning to really trust that and have a confidence, a strong confidence in that, because I, I guess I, I feel like often is the case after all the testing and the you know the endless testing, the endless conversations with mm-hmm. everybody, the actors, the directors, the producers, the studio, often, and I'm probably helping it along too, but Often things come back, it's full circle, mm. and things come back to what was in my mind's eye when I first read that script. And I don't, you know, want to be stubborn about my perspective because it's important to explore all of it. But I feel like the guts of it are often where I started with my initial feeling about something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how, (laughs) and it may not have come up in your um, career so far, but how have you dealt with or do you think you would deal with if you had a really strong gut feeling on something, but the director's gut feeling was in the complete opposite direction?
2: Yes. Well, that happens and that happens all the time. And you have to just let go yeah. at a certain point. You have to. What's important is that you articulate your concerns express your concerns or you express your feeling very clearly, like what, what you feel is the right path. And if they come back and they say, we understand, but this is what it has to be. Well, you got to let go. Yeah. And so often I am reminded of having to do that. And some people say, Hey, well, you know, it's, it's my name that's attached to this project. Well, yeah. And I understand that too. But do that other alternative, that variation to the best of your ability and mm. make that shine as well, yeah, even exactly. though it may not be your vision. Yeah. Make that great. Yeah. And and I guess the only thing that plays into that would be, you know, 11th hour kind of shift of plan. And, and that is the trickiest thing where where you've been developing something and whether it's, you know you know, an intricate prosthetic makeup or a a beautifully knotted wig or whatever it is, where they say, no, we're going to do this now. Well, at that point, there is grave concern, because sometimes you just don't have time to make this variation shine. And so that is a quandary. And that's always going to be a big challenge if and when that does.
0: Yeah, I think that's um, just a consistent challenge throughout the industry is just learning mm. to let go and breathe and be like it's okay yeah it's gonna be what it's yeah. gonna be i've done my best yeah. it's yes okay yeah <laughs> can't That's freak out funny. over every little thing that happens or you'd be a mess
2: <laughs> yeah you would be and and part of what is exciting for us is this, you know, having to reach into your bag of tricks from, you know, the various experiences you've had and making it work. Like I get a real buzz out of that. Mm. And, you know, and so that's also part of the spark that keeps us going. If everything was beautifully planned to a T all the time, like some of that spirit would would dim a little bit, I feel. So a healthy balance Mm. of, of these spontaneous moments where you've got a MacGyver through something, I guess, you know, that keep, that's fulfilling for me as well.
0: Yeah. I think I, I, I initially have a knee jerk reaction. Like I I want to roll my eyes and go, Oh, why? But then the moment that I'm like doing it and I see it start coming together, I'm like, Oh no, this is awesome. This is cool. I'm so glad we're doing this. (laughs) Yes.
2: And every now and again, you know, you're working with a, a, a visionary, like a, a director who is, you're like, you know, I didn't see this, but God damn, yeah. that's really good. Yeah. And, and often you do have to trust that because, you know, they often when you know a director is also a writer Mm. they have insights and they've thought about things that actually go beyond you know the scope of what we've considered yeah so you know there's that layer
0: no they're (laughs) deep deep into it and they've been deep into it for a long time
2: (laughs) especially as you say (laughs) when
0: they've been writing it oh my god it's all they live breathe and think about for months on end so yeah yeah absolutely hey I wanted to touch on ghost in the shell because you co-department headed that with the wonderful Jane O'Kane yes and so firstly how was it like helping bring that whole visual to life well I mean it was it was just
2: such a colorful world that we had the pleasure of of creating or of just being part of the creation of and you know working with Jane O'Kane she is like a sister to me and we you know our desks were facing each other for over a year and we talk about just you know a fusion of minds and and just the bouncing back and forth i don't think i could have done that with anybody other than jane o'kane yeah. we just have a very healthy working relationship and just bounced off each other both had you know our own strengths to offer and i feel like just together as a team we are just you know able to come at it with a fresh perspective and then also the ability to bounce Uh, off each other it was a real wonderful way of being able to you know check each other and either endorse or help each other down a path you know like we were constantly like it just felt like we were lifting each other all the way through the process but you know of course it was you know such a big process along with the art department working with the DOP and the colors those bright beautiful delicious colors Mm. um, the costumes and how eccentric and different those were and working in this futuristic style, but also with this bend of tradition, like when it came to the geishas, you know, so we're working in the future, but with influence of the past, which, you know, that's pretty much everything anyway. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it was really interesting, interesting to do, you know, futuristic honoring tradition
0: yeah, yeah that's very cool that's so it awesome. sounds like there's definitely some benefits of co-department heading yes, with Jane yes yeah
2: yeah Oh well, yeah and so for a project that big mm. that would be my preference as I've gotten a little bit older <laughs> that would to be perfectly honest that would be my preference just because you do take some of the load and it's a wonderful way of just cross-checking and there's just a bit more breath between things instead of being so frantic all the way through. Yeah. So yes,
0: that's awesome. with the
2: right person, it's it's a fantastic way yeah. to
0: go. I seem yeah. to, I think it's popping up more and more, especially on bigger projects, mm-hmm. being able to have yeah. that co-department head. And especially because you guys were doing both hair and makeup. So that's, you know, it's definitely going to help.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: So I do have to ask, Sarah, because I I love asking this question because it is, I, I think our line of work has so many challenges in so many different areas, but I'd love to know what the most challenging project is that you've worked on so far, whether it be just as a whole, the project was challenging or because it had one specific makeup that was super challenging or it was, the location. Yeah. What would that be?
2: Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's, it's like asking, uh, it's a tricky one because it's like, it would be like asking me what's your favorite or, you know, food because they're all, they've all been challenging in their own unique way. Mm -hmm. Some have been, you know, location challenging, like impossible. Some have been very difficult because of the creative climate and maybe not seeing eye to eye, with the director some have been tricky because of the cast and maybe having somebody in a prosthetic makeup that wasn't really understanding what the full scope of that meant and mm-hmm. so the challenges attached to that and then also sometimes you know just timeline sometimes money and not having enough money to get there but having an ambitious vision Mm. and require. So it is, it is, it's, it's tricky. It's a tricky question, but I I would say that even though, you know, district nine was the most exhilarating Mm. of my careers, it was also the most challenging of my career because we were actually not a part of the prep. And it was, as I mentioned, it was a very ambitious kit, including all these, you know, all the many different stages of the prosthetics as he, as Charles, as Vickius starts to transform transform. So, you know, to not be a part of that, and then to open the boxes in Johannesburg and figure out how we were going to make it all work, that was a hell of a thing. So, but then also the locations and during that period in Johannesburg, there were, there was a lot of rioting. So there was, it was dangerous, you know, so there was that layer in there as well. So I would say, you know, although mo- the most exhilarating, it was also the most horrifying, <laughs> or the scariest, the most challenging, and super ambitious. And I think part of it, like I said, is because we weren't involved in the the pre-production phase. So yeah. hit the uh, ground
0: running! Oh my god. Yeah, and then we were
2: across the world from our, our from Weta Workshop, who yeah. was supplying us the the various elements to keep us fed and moving through the production
0: so yeah so I feel like it actually ticks a lot of the boxes that you were listing before you answered the question that's probably why it's up there
2: (laughs) if I weren't younger and so passionate at the time I wouldn't have made it through (laughs) If I had that challenge now, I don't think I'd make it through. Just leave
0: me here in the slums. That's fine. I'll be fine. So keep those projects for the the (laughs) young'uns. Oh, my goodness. So now that you're in a position where you're hiring people and putting teams together for different projects, what are you looking for when you're putting a team together?
2: Oh, yes. You know, I think people who take initiative is a big is a big thing for me because often I, you know, we get so busy and, and focused on and on what we're doing. I kind of need people just to, they, you know, people know what to do, and they have to be self motivating mm. and they have to have, you know, intuitive way about their. You know their day. You know what needs to be done when. You know there's certain things that need to happen every day, all day. Mm. You know, do the rounds, make sure everything's good to go. So I think people that take initiative, good work ethics, of course, skilled goes without being said. People who are skilled and confident, but also humble. Mm -hmm. You know that's important. And and in the realm of humble comes, you know, no fucking drama. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, now I Oh, God. But
0: I do feel... <laughs>
2: well, that's, do feel, that's true. I feel passionate about that mm. because, you know, we have a lot to get done over the course of a day and a week and a month. And when there is drama and when team is not supporting team, mm. when my team is not supporting each other... There's a lot of energy put into that. That energy is being pulled out of the creative aspect and the creative um, process. And so it's very upsetting to me when the focus shifts from creative potential and what everyone can do to lift each other and elevate each other to drama and everyone fighting hard for a carrot or just being catty. Like, and so for me, it's very important on my teams. We have a family, you know, unity that there's, you know, uh, camaraderie and a lightheartedness, but also just a support. and Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 There's not enough time for anything else. <laughs> no, there's not. Oh, yeah. As you say, energy, it's just exhausting. Like, who wants to deal with that? Yeah it's 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 short-sighted
2: is what it is so and I have I don't have time for it yeah so yeah That's awesome.
0: yeah I would love to know someone wanting to get into your line of work what advice would you give them
2: well I think we'll do everything and anything you can in the way of creating in creating opportunities so that means do study whether it's self-study, whether it's raising your hand for apprentice work, take classes. If there's something that you love that you've seen in a movie or on a TV show, create it at home, you know, try to duplicate it, you know, and there'll be so much you learn in, in that process. And then when you come up, you know, there's so many forums online now where you can, you know, raise your hand and ask a question and get some recommendations and then go back and try it again, do it again, see if it, if you've learned something, you know, so I think just, just doing, moving, taking the initiative. And then when you get an opportunity, when you do get an opportunity, everybody does, mm. making the most of it, yeah. you know, don't, don't say, well, this is not really what I want to do. This is, it's a different, a little different than what I want to do. Well, you know what? This is your opportunity. Mm. Make the most of it. That leads to another door. And then that thing leads to another door. And you are in control of your destiny, truly. And honestly, it's like you we create our own opportunities and you have to maximize so when you do get those opportunities, finish strong. Don't fade at the end of a job. Like don't get jaded and be like, oh well, I've proven myself now and I'm tired and I'm frustrated with these things. Finish strong. Mm. People will remember you for how things finish up.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. It's the last thing about yeah. and so don't fade at the end of a job. Yeah. You know, finish. Yeah. And that just because as you are saying that that journey may not be, you know, you're direct from A to B, but you need to kind of go off on a little, little side journey every now and again to get to where you're going. Think of all the stuff you're going to learn. Like you're just constantly going to be learning other things that will help you at the end of the day.
2: And Jamie Lee, I'm a perfect example of that and my whole journey. And I will tell you that even to this day, I am I'm using my fabrication skills Mm. in the makeup arena, you know, pattern making, you know, with prosthetics. It is, it's everything that we experience leading up to our next thing, it's all helpful. Yeah. And you know, going to college and you know, that was my path and all of those administrative skills that I learned through my studies. They have been so valuable for me as a department head because, you know, that's a big part of it. Mm. You know, you can be creatively like genius, but if you're running a department and if you're not communicating well with the director, with the producers, if you're not, you know, able to budget for your line producer, well, then you're not ticking that box. So Mm. then maybe perhaps department heading isn't for you. So that was important for me too. You know, all those administrative skills, the filing, the everything. So, yeah, yeah, make the most out of everything, truly.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
2: And I, I feel like
0: <laughs> I'm I, – no, I, I don't think I know the answer to this question, but what do you love most about what you do? Oh, goodness. You know,
2: I think just the color and diversity with the creative, you know, with the creative aspect of it, yeah. the people connection – You know, people from all over the world, you know, I've had incredible opportunity to travel working with extraordinary humans, you know, from extraordinary directors to extraordinary performers, extraordinary artists you know, people who love to storytell, who are the best in the biz and who are living their fullest potential. So to be in and amongst that is so inspiring. I, I do love that. And I love being a part of storytelling. I love being a successful artist. I feel like it's a real privilege being a successful anything in this day and age is tricky, but to be a successful artist, I feel honored and grateful and privileged. And, you know, for all of those reasons. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's very cool. I love it. It's a perfect answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it comes through and just this whole time I've been talking to you. That's why I was just like, I feel like I know the answer to this question, but just through how you've spoken about your work and how passionate you are about creating it's yeah, yeah. it's awesome yeah
2: no oh, thank you Jamie Lee <laughs> you haven't gone bitter
0: yet lady it hasn't happened yet
2: <laughs> well yeah no no, no? as soon as that happens you know we all have our moments of course, of course. but as soon as that happens, it's time to it's time to shift gears
0: so <laughs> yeah. I feel a lot of love in my heart for what I do that's so. awesome now throughout the last 20 years of doing mm. what It is that you do. What have you noticed in the industry that has changed?
2: Yeah, I mean, oh, goodness. Uh, Within the technology of makeup and prosthetic makeup, Mm. the technology has changed and now that we're working with silicone a lot more than at the early days when I first got involved. But in a larger scope, you know, film has moved to digital, so now we're at 8K, Mm. so you know, moving to HD, of course, the rise of VFX, but also, also, I do feel like, you know, there are a lot of directors wanting to come back to practical, I do feel like that's happening to a certain degree. Mm. I have just finished two films back to back with a prominent indie filmmaker, Ty West, and he's known for his horror films, but they're quite, you know, quite uh, clever and colorful. Mm-hmm. He's he's quite brilliant. And um, so he is a director. He's a perfect example of a young director that is wanting to come back to practical. Mm-hmm. So in these two movies, X and then Pearl, we did a lot of practical effects, gags, huge prosthetic makeups full transformations and then subtle ones, everything in between. You know, I even had Kevin Wozner come to New Zealand for the first film for X, which was amazing because we had some, you know, ambitious makeups, but also some ambitious gags. And mm. so he was a part of that, which was super cool. But yeah. yeah, so yes, the rise of VFX, but also, you know, kind of come in full circle. I hope, I hope the practical stuff never goes away. I don't think it will.
0: Yeah. I think the last thing I saw that was just kind of blew my mind in that way was Pinocchio. I was just like, oh, my God. They could have opted for VFX on so many occasions in that film and didn't, and it was so nice to see.
2: Oh, my God. That film and Mark's work, the makeup work, by the whole creative makeup and hair department, Mark Coulier and his work in particular – blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And I got that feeling inside of me that I had when I, you know, was watching the Star Wars films as a little girl, feeling like, Oh, my God, these are practical. These are characters, they felt so real to me, because they were real. Yeah, they weren't just, you know, layered digital, you know, digital layers, they were practical. And you feel that in your bones. And I felt that in my bones. Pinocchio is a perfect example, and that was a film that came out last year, and it should be celebrated, and it will be celebrated. It, it just stunning and breathtaking, truly.
0: So, is that if I was to say, what changes would you like to see moving forward? Is that one of the things that you'd like to see more of? Yeah,
2: yes, but in particular,
0: we need to come back to atmosphere and
2: graininess in film. Like that's I always oh, talk lady. about that.
0: I mean, yeah,
2: you're speaking my language. (laughs) Because, you know, like that crisp, clean, that crisp, clean effect, that's good for sports mm. and that's good for nature docos
0: yeah i totally 100 percent agree
2: yes but it, it's not for film mm. we need that fuzz to come back we want those you know we want that softness that graininess you know we don't need to see every corner so crisp and clean so that that is my hope um, that's my hope for change in the future and that is, I feel that very strongly. Yeah,
0: yeah me too. I just, and yeah. it, even if it's just as simple as my own personal well being of being on set where they're just pumping in the Atmos constantly because they don't want yeah. it to look so clean yeah. and crisp and clear, I don't want to sit and smoke all day. Right through oh. to the end result of actually watching it and being like, why?
2: Yeah. So I keep saying, let's come back to film, but obviously that's not the answer either. But they just need to create a new, you know, a new norm in which the HD gives us that, that layer of graininess mm. that we, we love and miss. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: true. The film I'm about to start is they're shooting it on film, oh, which wonderful. is pretty exciting. But I was wow. like, oh, that's where the budget's going. <laughs> Because, <laughs> yeah, that's why everyone can't go back to film. It's just too expensive.
2: Yeah, it is. But it's going to be a really cool experience, Jamie Lee. Mm. Like that. Is, it, it will mean that things are going to perhaps be planned a little bit better. They can't be so, you know, oh, we'll just do 20 takes. We'll just do
0: rolling um, resets for yeah, three hours. <laughs>
2: exactly. So, within that, will come all kinds of really cool revisits of you know, it'll be a revisit to the way things used to be done and hopefully better planning, which is, which will, I'm sure you'll embrace.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, lady, of course. Love a good plan. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I would like to sit you in your trailer and have you all set up. You've got all your makeup and hair goodies and tools and everything in front of you. And if I was to come in and take one thing away from you, what would it be that would just stress you out? You'd be like, no, you cannot oh. take that from me. <laughs> Please.
2: Oh my goodness. You know, my team will be would be able to answer this question <laughs> for me because they know how sacred and how how sacred this item is. But there is an incredible artist from Australia prosthetic makeup artist. Her name is Catherine Brown. Mm -hmm. And many, many, many years ago she gave me a brush. And it's this little stipple brush. Mm -hmm. And it is it is looks like a disaster. (laughs) It really does. It looks terrible and it's not pretty but it it is just the most beautiful. It gives me just the perfect amount of organic stippling whether it be you know you know for all my character makeups but you know whether it be over an, an appliance or just direct onto skin but I'm able to use you know my you know wash down inks with this brush and just get a perfect end result so I have it's like my blankie <laughs> I <laughs> probably survive just fine without it but in my mind mm. if I don't have that brush it's just all going down you know down, it, it, it's going to hell in a handbasket
0: <laughs> and you've never been able to replicate it by finding something similar and I, bashing it into submission
2: yeah I probably could but it's it's, it's a little bit of a gimmick now, me yeah. and my brush yeah. <laughs> so I feel like as long as it stays with me then I don't need to make another one I probably could and I could, yeah, but it's, it's just, it's, there's a little bit of a shtick I have with the brush. So
0: <laughs> that's awesome. So I want to just ask a little, I know you can't talk about it too much, but the films you've been working on down in New Zealand are the next Avatar films with James Cameron, right? Yes. Yeah. I think the one thing to say
2: is that, you know, working with Cameron on his next two films has been, you know, a huge honor. Like I said earlier, The Abyss, Aliens, they were all incredible films growing up. So now to be working with this director is pretty cool. And it's really challenging. The stakes are very high, but I will be very proud to have been a part of it, part of them two and three I believe two is being released Christmas of 2022 oh cool and yeah so next year at Christmas time year and a half away yeah and then number three will be released I believe two years later so that would be 2024
0: wow that's awesome and And I don't know if you remember Sarah but it's the first time I ever met you was in the crowd room on the first avatar it was
2: it was Jamie Lee. I do remember that. I, I certainly do. And and we actually connected right away. And and then you and I did that little indie with our friend Biz and Hamish, our friends Biz and Hamish. Yes. And
0: I know I remember um, seeing yeah. like I didn't. Yeah. I never saw any um, design concepts or anything for what you guys were doing. But then on the day. I was just like, holy shit. Who did you do that on? Ben, right? Yes, it was perfect. Full head to toe transformation. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah,
2: it, it was fun. And we basically just pulled everything and anything we had in our kit. And I was like, all right, let's stick all these bits to him and then <laughs> see what it looks like. And it was actually quite cool. Yeah, so that was fun. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, and then, of course, you and I got to do a project a few, few years back, Jamie Lee, which was great with, you know, the Ted Bundy story
0: and Zach Efron. Yeah, that was fun. That. it was insanity and it was yeah. fun. And we also <laughs> did um, when you came a little for a little while on The Hobbit.
2: Yes. And you and I were working together on the one one character and <laughs> Mr. Uh, Mark Hadlow. <laughs> Mark Hadlow, of course. Yeah. Team dory. So, oh my goodness. That's right. <laughs> and st- that was right before yeah, that was right before I went off to Elysium. But yeah, yeah, and was... all
0: Mark would say, "She's going off to be with Matt Damon." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, you'll be okay. We'll be okay. It's all right." Oh, it's oh, too
2: funny. To do it again,
0: girl. Oh, we're of gonna. Course, we'll I do know. it again. Yes. Now, I would like to know who you would like to hear on the podcast. Oh goodness! Well, I'm not sure. You, you you say you've
2: done forty plus interviews? Wow! <laughs> so I I'm not sure if you have a Jane O'Kane or a Gino Acevedo in there. I
0: do not yet.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm those two. You know, they,
0: they're on the list, lady. They're on the list. No,
2: yeah, you know Howard Berger. I'm not sure if you. I you haven't have spoken him to you. Yeah and he is you know just good value he's amazing like his scope of you know experience everything he's done yeah. and he's just a funny guy he is you know he's been a mentor so I can't say enough about him and then of course you know you've got the Jason Dockertys out there and you know yeah the, but yeah at the top of that list would be Gino and Jane I'd say
0: okay awesome yeah. lady yeah. i appreciate your time so much today and it's been so awesome learning more about your story because there's so much i didn't know
2: yeah well it has been amazing getting to revisit and talk through it with you jamie lee and congratulations on your podcast it's there's just great great little chapters and insights to everybody in our crazy little wacky industry so thank you
0: for links to see more about our guests go to our instagram at the last Looks podcast or our website thelastlookspodcast.com if you want to keep up with new episodes being released be sure to subscribe through apple podcasts spotify amazon google play youtube or any podcast streaming platform and remember if you're enjoying the show share it the last looks podcast would like to thank brett stanley and sabrina castro the song fun time by dj quads thanks for listening until next time
1: that's a wrap people